Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's always a privilege to be up here. For those wondering, Bobby is under the weather this week, and so I'll be here this morning. Uh, I can't do a, a fit check like Josh. If I took these shoes off, it'd take me so long to get them back on, and that'd be a mess, and so we'll just leave it with what he did. Uh, but we are going to be talking a little bit about, uh, about clothing. Uh, we all like clothing, whether you know it or not. I was looking this week. It's a $500 billion industry. Uh, that sounds like a made-up number that can't exist, but $500 billion spent annually on clothing. Uh, I have um, promoted or graduated. I now buy my pants at Costco, uh, and so I've arrived there. I still spend too much on shoes, but the clothing, we've really lowered the bar uh, for what's acceptable. You'll get there in a few years. You'll get your pants at Costco. Uh, but today we're going to talk about a little different clothing. We're going to talk about a, a pretty unusual metaphor that, that Paul uses in Galatians where he says that we are clothed in Christ. Galatians is a, a letter written to a group of churches. Paul is traveling and due to some physical ailment or injury, takes a pit stop in Galatia and ends up planting a church there. Now, this is a tumultuous time for the church because there's a lot of changes happening. There's very uh, few Jews in this area and a lot of Gentiles that are coming to faith. And it's easy for us to look at the Jewish um, representatives in the New Testament and paint them with some evil brush that they're just mean-spirited, that they hate all these new Christians, that they uh, don't want to see the church grow, that they want to be exclusive. But, but you have to understand, they have rather rapidly watched the church change. Right, it, it, it deserves mentioning here that the Jewish people that accepted Christ did not see themselves as abandoning Judaism. They didn't even see themselves as starting a, certainly another religion. Uh, Paul still saw himself as a Jewish Christian. Jesus still saw himself as Jewish. They just understood this to be a fuller picture of what true Judaism was. And so now when these Gentiles come into the church, the Jewish Christians are trying to navigate what this ought to look like. And so you've got Jewish Christians that for years have been waiting for the Messiah. They believe they've found the Messiah. They want to continue doing their practices, their rituals, their customs, but now aiming them towards this Jesus Messiah. And there's a new group coming in that goes, no, we just want to bypass all of that. I think most of us can relate to that. At looking at the horizon, looking at the trend of church and going, this is not the way it looked before. For some, that may be an encouragement. But for some of us, it may be devastating. The things that you held dear, the things that you found most important don't seem to be important anymore. It's easy to poke fun at those that want to wear a suit and tie in church and they expect everybody else to, but that's what you knew. And now you look up and you go, well, it's, it's not that anymore and I wish it was. I think we can relate a little more to these Jewish Christians if we'll just take a second to think about where they're coming from. They are scared. 
And so they said, okay, uh, we want to be open. Right? The Jewish Christians are happy to welcome Gentiles into their church. But you've got to at least be a little Jewish. Now, I don't know why they went, uh, they went really uh, big and went with circumcision. Uh, if you want to bring in new members and you go, but you just got to do one thing, that's not where I'd start. Uh, but that's what they do, right? So he says at the beginning of Galatians, but I think in Philippians actually paints Paul's frustration a little better. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, not a great club name either. We who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He says these people have come and they've added extra stuff to the cross. And he's frustrated. He, he planted this church. He thought he left it in good hands. And now he finds out that they have, to use his words, been bewitched. He calls them witless and brainless at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul is frustrated that they have been so swayed as to believe that there's something in addition to the cross that they have to accomplish in order to take advantage of what it purchased. That's the context of where we find Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Now, before faith came, in contrast to the law, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. This word that the NRSV translates disciplinarian is pedagogue. Uh, in the Greek, pedagogue is where we get the word pedagogy, which is kind of the study of how we teach and how we learn. But a pedagogue wasn't actually a teacher. See, uh, uh, families that had means, when you had a baby, you hired a wet nurse. When the child was done breastfeeding, you moved up to a pedagogue. And then later, while the pedagogue remained, you would hire a teacher and they would begin to actually teach lessons. The pedagogue had one responsibility and that was to keep you in line until you reached adulthood. N.T. Wright in his translation of the New Testament translates it babysitter. Paul says what you have done is you have grown up. We've come into a new age, the age of faith over law, and you called your babysitter and said, would you come watch me? It's absurd. It's absurd that anybody would call upon their babysitter to come guide them as an adult. He said, you have aged out of that. We've aged out of the law and we've moved into faith and you're trying to reverse the clock. Here's the irony of that. Some of us have developed quite a list of sins that God most hates. If we made another list of sins I struggle least with, that Venn diagram is a circle. And we've decided these are all the things God hates most because it's the things that I struggle with least. These are the things that I struggle with more. I can justify and sanctify those and move on. And we develop a picture and go, this is what a believer ought to look like. 
And we begin to enforce those rules upon people. And we say, you need to act like this and dress like this and vote like this and, and talk like this and like this kind of music and this kind of church style and this denomination. We, we make this long list and we go, this is what it means to be a Christian. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that, see, we've made a new law and it's because I'm extra spiritual. If you were extra spiritual, you'd want to do it too. And Paul says, that's not a sign of spiritual maturity. If anything, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity that you would call back this babysitter from your childhood to say, I need you to hold my hand and make sure I don't do anything bad. It's the irony of trying to be super spiritual by holding up this set of rules and Paul go, all you're doing is calling the pedagogue and asking her to come and, and mind you again. Second reason this, uh, this analogy works well for, um, for Paul is the pedagogue is always a temporary hire. Nobody hired a pedagogue assuming that she would remain with that child into adulthood and then would remain with him until he died. Would stick by her as she uh, got married and move in with that family and would remain with her until she died. Everybody understood this is temporary employment. The law was always temporary. I don't think any of us would say it out loud, but if we're not careful, what we articulate by our actions and by our theology is that he introduced the law as plan A. Thought maybe it'd work. It's a long shot, but maybe. And over time he went, okay, it just isn't where they're not getting it. I thought they could, but they can't. And so now we've got to bring in the big guns. Let's introduce Jesus to the scenario. It was always plan A that Jesus would do what Jesus did. The law was always temporary to be superseded by faith. Faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. We need to understand that this, under, this, this, this uh, worldview that's wrapped around law was always intended to be temporary. He says, now that Jesus has come and the faith that comes along with that, we have been afforded the ability to let the pedagogue go. To lay the law aside. He says elsewhere in Galatians, in fact, if you want to use the law, you're only cursing yourself because no one can live up to it. He's doing you a favor by laying this aside. It's temporary. Continue in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. This is a weird metaphor. Paul's talking about baptism. That word has actually a, a really rich metaphorical meaning where uh, we have extra biblical texts that use this word baptizo that we translate baptism, that use it uh, that, that people were baptized by a sword, pierced deeply. Or that they were baptized in drunkenness, that they were drowned in drunkenness, and they use this word baptizo. It's a, it's a big picture, and even our metaphorical picture, uh, Paul uses it in two different ways. In one way, that we are buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in Romans 6. But now he's using it as a different understanding, but still this full metaphorical image of being submerged. There is a reason that we baptize the way we do. I want to be very clear. Sometimes people get confused about the way Paul talks about baptism 
Because it almost sounds like the act of baptism is what saves you. Here's what Paul could not have had a concept for that we now have. Paul could not have understood a Christian who came to faith and was waiting till some other moment to be baptized. There wasn't a concept for it. When you came to faith, you were baptized. And so Paul does talk about baptism and salvation almost in the same breath, not because he thinks the water's magical. When you're baptized here, I promise whatever transformation has come in your life, the Holy Spirit, it happened before you got in that tap water. There's nothing magic about it. But when Paul talks about it this way, it's because he does not understand a scenario where we get uh, saved and then later on get baptized. That's not intended to guilt anyone. That's not intended to shame anyone. I'm just telling you that's why Paul talks about it this way. And he talks about baptism as well as being immersion. We baptize by immersion. And we baptize believers. Biblical understanding of baptism precludes infant baptism. Sprinkling does not paint the same picture, although there is a, an ancient teaching text called the DDK that the early church fathers would use. And it does say, hey, uh, baptize by immersion. But if you don't have a full tub, dump something on their head. If you don't have that ring, the kitchen washcloth out over their head. Get, get them wet is what the point is. Uh, but we baptize by immersion. And even from the early church, that's been the ideal way to baptize because of the picture that it paints, both of death and resurrection but also the way Paul uses it here, this full covering. Now he says, when you were baptized, you were clothed in Christ. And he's probably calling to their mind their baptism, where they were probably baptized in the nude and then given a white, cloth, a white cloth to put over themselves after baptism to represent this new life. But I also think there's a metaphorical understanding of the way Paul talks about baptism that when he says clothed in Christ, it's this understanding of being completely covered. Colossians uses this same phrase, but it, it uses it more in ethical implications. That because you're clothed in Christ, this is how then you should behave. Where this is a different understanding of some social implications that because you have been fully covered in Christ, yes, all the things that Colossians says are true, but also your complete identity, the things that make you who you are, are now completely covered and submerged in Christ. Completely and fully pierced by Christ. Completely and fully uh, um, uh, uh, washed out in a new thing. Not covered up. But a new thing now is in its place. And the implications of that, he says, is that now, therefore, there is no Greek or Jew. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Well, that's weird because Paul clearly understands there are two genders and he still understands that he's a guy. Paul calls himself a Jewish Christian regularly. Paul even quotes his, uh, his Roman citizenship regularly. Paul recognizes that he didn't become a homogenous blob with the rest of the church, but what he recognizes is that, uh, that identity gives him no special privilege within the church. For Paul... The church is not just this thing that you gather in once a week and worship. For Paul, the church is not just something, uh, not just a group of believers. For Paul, the church prefigures the world that is to come 
in spite of still being in the world that is. Paul's understanding of church prefigures the new creation in the midst of the old creation where we use identity markers to divide, where we use our our personal attributes and traits to develop hierarchies. He says, no, 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 not, not so here. The, level, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody's got a, a better seat in heaven, and, and good news is nobody's got a worse seat. Nobody's got a pole. Nobody's got an obstructed view. We serve a big, big God, and there is uh, plenty of opportunity to see Him in His full majesty. Those who got saved when they were eight and died when they were 90 and never diverted from their faith but continued to pursue the Lord get the same opportunities at the foot of the cross as the person who truly comes to know the Lord on their deathbed. And if that upsets you, you don't understand grace. That's the parable of the vineyard where the vineyard worker goes out and collects workers at six and puts them to work and at nine and puts them to work and at noon and puts them to work and at three and puts them to work and then at 5 p.m. an hour before they close up and puts them to work and pays everybody the same and the guys that got there early say, well, hold on now. And the vineyard worker says, we made a deal that you agreed to and it's my money, not yours. It's his grace, not yours. Don't worry about the way that God meets it out. For Paul, the church prefigures the new creation, which means there is no division. Our identity markers have been washed out of here. I suspect, and give you the benefit of the doubt, uh, that we don't have any racists in the room. So nobody came in here going, well, I kind of thought there was separation between races, Jew and Greek. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and go, there's not any sexists in the room that thought, no, 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 there's a, there's a, a, a subordinate and a, a, a more important gender. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say nobody's probably wrestling with that in here. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and go that we all can unequivocally and univocally say that slavery was abhorrent and a terrible thing in the past of this country and that you weren't struggling with whether those should be hierarchies within the church. But I do think we all carry with us a certain level of identity that we say, because I am this, I'm better than those who are not. It may be that you idolize your political affiliation and you have uh, raised it from just uh, your understanding of politics to uh, somehow this, uh, uh, this is the way Jesus would have done it. And so anybody who doesn't is less than. Or I've been saved longer and so anybody else is less than. Or whatever it may be, we may not carry the ones that that Paul's talking about, but we still carry these things. They go, no, 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 I'm, I'm a little better than they are. My attendance is way less shoddy than theirs is. Or I, I don't miss Sunday school. Or I, I, I do extra of this or I do extra of that. They just show up every once in a while. Some of them Christmas and Easter. So I got to be better than them, right? You know what we do when we do that? We've added questions to the test. There's only one question. If you 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If, if you add another question to that, you're in dangerous territory. Jesus said, not Evan, Jesus said, anybody who puts up a barrier for these little ones to come to me, it would be better for them to tie a millstone around their neck and be thrown into the sea. That's pretty graphic. That's how Jesus feels when we add questions to the test. And you go, yeah, yeah, but Evan, it says that we need to gather. So that means if you don't gather, you're not saved. No, it doesn't. But it says, Evan, that we should think this way. So anybody that doesn't think that way, they can't be saved. It's not what it says. We're adding questions to the test. And that is a dangerous role to play. And a role you haven't been asked to play. He says, he's the vine. And if we'll abide in him, then what we'll find is those that don't produce fruit will be cut off and those that do produce fruit will be uh, chopped back, will be pruned. But, but nowhere does it say, and, and if anybody wants to volunteer, here's the scissors. We know who the vine dresser is. He's in this room, but he's not sitting in any of these pews. He says, these identity markers that you have placed so highly as to set yourself up over someone for whom Christ died have no place in the church. Corinth had this problem where they're going, hey, I get that we probably shouldn't eat idol meat, but I'm a stronger Christian. So the weaker Christians, they probably can't handle it, but I'm, I'm more mature in my faith. He says, no, you've just puffed yourself up with pride instead of allowing love to build up the church. If the pride of our identity begins to place us in a hierarchy, we've missed it. Now, quickly, there may be some in this room that go, I don't struggle with placing myself above everybody. I, I think I'm the scum of the earth. I've told you before, and if I preach again, you'll hear it again. You don't get to decide your worth. It's already been decided for you. On the cross of Christ, Jesus said you were worth his death. And so from this point forward, it's irrelevant how worthy you think you are. You can go to any expensive art gallery and you can look at stuff and go, that's not worth that. If someone's willing to pay it, it is. You've been paid for. So I don't want to hear, what, but not me, Evan. I'm, I, you don't understand. No, you. The ground is level. At the foot of the cross. Then Paul says, so if all that's true, then now we're children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. But he just said we're children of God. So how can we be children of Abraham for children of God? Abraham's not God. That is for certain. If you are confused, that don't forget that. So what does it mean that we're now children of Abraham and heirs of the promise? Well, Genesis 12 tells us what the promise is, first of all. That you will have, uh, through your generations, one, the Messiah will come, but two, you'll be a blessing to the nations. What Paul is doing, maybe to the chagrin of many of the Jewish Christians in the room, is talking to the Gentiles and saying, our history is now your history. This church is old. It's been here a long time. You're part of something older. This 
countries, not that old, but a lot older than anybody else in this room, but you're a part of something older than that. Churches, we know it. Sit down, look up, stage, 600 years old. It's part of something older than that. Jesus establishing the church of Christ 2,000 years ago. You're a part of something older than that. We have been grafted into this history of Abraham, which means that we are a part now of this meta-narrative that is above all things of reconciling all things to God. Don't miss this. You are not Jewish now, let me be clear. Maybe you're Messianic Jewish. I'd be surprised if you're here. Uh, You're probably not Jewish now, but what you are is a part now of this much grander story than just simply, I got baptized when I was eight, I'm gonna try to be a good boy and I'm gonna die and go to heaven. You're a part of something now much greater than all of that as we participate now in what God is doing in this world. We're a part of the grand fixing of all that is broken, the the straightening of all that is crooked. We are a part of reconciling all of creation to who God is. That's the history that you now have after you have been baptized and clothed in Jesus. Now we're not doing the reconciling, we're not doing the saving, we're not doing the redeeming, but we are as the church, the primary conduit of God's love to this world. We're plan A and there is no plan B. That's the thing that we're now a part of. My favorite definition of missions is seeing where God's at work and joining him. You hear us say it all the time. You read it on the walls on mission where our feet are. That's what we're talking about, that we're now part of this grand mission. We're not just talking about uh, sharing your faith with your coworkers. That's part of it. We're not just talking about being a good neighbor in your neighborhood, that's part of it. We're not just talking about being the hardest worker at your job, that's part of it. We're talking about being on mission in what God is doing and reconciling all things to himself, being a part of a community that prefigures the eternal new world in spite of the fact that we're still in the old one. We exist in an already not yet mentality as believers. Heaven doesn't start. The kingdom of God doesn't start when you die. It started, well, it did. Not when you die on this earth. It started when you died to self and accepted Christ your Lord and Savior. You now got grafted into this much larger thing. Thinking that salvation is primarily about where you go after you die is a massive understatement. It's a truncating of the gospel into this tiny myopic benefit for you when we're talking about being a part of something so much more grand in scale. And those of us, if you're going, well, can I go to heaven and not do that? Maybe, I don't know, that's not my call. But you're missing out. I'm participating with the God of the universe, the creator of all things seen and unseen, and all that he is doing this side of the world. When you busy yourself in internet arguments about uh, minutia, you are missing out on what God is doing in this world. When you have uh, crowned yourself the sin police and you go around telling everybody else how they've screwed it up and if they look more like you, they'd be better, you're missing out on what God is doing in this world. When you decide you could pray and do whatever you want for the rest of your life, you're missing out on what God is doing in this world. Both uh, legalistic people and antinomians, the, the, the anything goes crowd, both of 
of you are missing it. God has invited you not just to get to go to a cool place after we die, but to participate now in what he's doing. And when we misunderstand that, nobody is losing but you. God's still going to get his glory. No amount of apathy can thwart his purposes. No lack of our praises are going to take anything away from him. He said, hey, don't worry about it. If you don't do it, the rocks will do it. Friends in high school, I'd go eat at their house and they had a rock on their table with two eyes and a Band-Aid over where its mouth would be. And I asked about it one day and they said, that rock's not going to have to cry out because this family's going to worship. But Jesus would say, but even if the unseths don't worship, I'll rip that Band-Aid off. When we take this, this beautiful invitation of God, and turn it into, what do I get out of it? God doesn't lose. His purposes don't fail. We just miss out on the grand invitation that he's given us. It's why I think so many people go to church and go, ah, just, I'm not into it. Or I can, I can do this without church. Or church is more of a burden than it is a privilege. It's because we've missed out that we get to participate. When sharing our faith is a, a painful experience. And l- listen, I know some of you would hate to be standing here and talking to a room full of people. I get it. Some of you may, it just, it terrifies you to walk up and have a conversation with a stranger. I get it. But every single one of us in the relationships we have, if we'll just be attentive to the Spirit, have opportunities to change the direction of a conversation to spiritual things in order to present the gospel to somebody. If that's, if that's painful and agonizing to you, it might be because we've missed out on the beauty of what God has offered us. If you have found the Christian walk to be a burden, if you, if you read Jesus' words and go, you're yoke is easy and your burden is light don't buy it it might be because you've missed out on this beautiful invitation not to go to heaven when you die but to partner with what God's doing in the meantime Paul says that's that's the implication of salvation that that the ground is leveled And that we all, Jews, Gentiles, that we all now in this church, all, I want to be very clear, that accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that we now all get to participate in the meta-narrative of God reconciling all things to himself. And if you'll join in participating with him in that, you'll likely find that his yoke is in fact easy. And his burden is, in fact, light. Let's pray. God.
God, you are good and you're for our good. Thank you. Forgive us when we take that for granted. Forgive us when we forget what you've invited us to be a part of. And so, God, I pray that you would do something in and through the lives of the people in this room as we leave this room. In their hearts and in their homes, in the workplaces, on campuses, in this city. Something that we can't take credit for, God. God, I pray that you would do something so big that our only explanation would simply be God did that. It's your name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder, if, if the Spirit stirred you in some way to respond today, we have an opportunity for you to text uh, 833-571-3475. If you'll text FL, respond to that. Uh, if you have questions about salvation or need prayer, one of our ministers will get in touch with you this week. Uh, and we'd love to connect with you in that way. And then finally, as we stand, we will close with this benediction and be dismissed. May the God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, shine his face upon you. You're dismissed.